Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. I also want to welcome you all back to another episode of the Spooky Book Support Club. During spooky season this year, we are hosting a Spooky Book Support Club for people like us who are either new to horror or who are too scared to read it. And to help host the Spooky Book Support Club, I have with me a very special guest. Thanks for joining me today, Mouse. Boo! Oh, I mean, it's nice to be here. <laughs> that was That was unexpected, but very very seasonal so i don't i don't mind all right so today for the official second episode or third episode depending on whether or not you count the announcement episode it's either the second or third episode of the spooky book support club and today we are doing night film I do want to go ahead and give my usual spoiler alert, my usual spoiler warning. I have Mouse with me, which as usual means that this is going to be an in-depth episode where we will be talking about everything. So, spoiler alert, spoiler warning, you have been warned. And when I say in-depth, I do mean in-depth. I think that I am the most prepared today for a discussion that I have ever been because in total, I believe I have over 20 pages of notes here, which may sound insane, but this is a very dense book. It is over 600 pages and for a mystery thriller, however you want to classify this book, I do think that there's a lot going on. So I have plenty of notes. How about you, Mouse? How are you feeling about our upcoming discussion? I'm really excited to learn what you think about this book because I feel like it's open to so many interpretations. Yes, particularly the ending, <laughs> as we will be getting into later. I thought the ending was tonally and thematically consistent for the book, but I know that you didn't like it very much. So I'm excited to see what kinds of interpretations and discussions we'll have today. All right, but before we get too ahead of ourselves, let us first explain this book. Let's let's talk about what it's about. <laughs> so. Night Film is a book that in many ways defies classification. I've seen it described as a mystery, a thriller, literary fiction, horror, but I, I think that the fairest classification for this book is that it is a very classic detective novel such as you don't really see very often these days. I feel like these days you don't really 
see these types of books very often where the characters investigating the central mystery are like running from place to place and like questioning people. You know, I, I don't feel like it happens very often in the modern mystery thriller sphere, but personally, it's it's one of my favorite types of stories. I think it's because I do really love those classic detective stories like Sherlock Holmes and really like Nancy Drew, I would say. I think carries on the tradition pretty well as well. I, I do think that these days, generally you see much more of the type of mystery thriller where you have a certain number of suspects to begin with and then you're like investigating them. But in stories like these, I tend to feel like there's much more of a sense of possibility of discovery because you don't really know you don't really know who you're going to meet next on this journey or what you're going to discover and in some ways I feel like that that is really exciting and really fresh and I feel like that's partially why this book is 600 pages but I feel like in a way it does justify that length because there's so much going on, they go to so many places, they talk to so many people and overall I don't know I I had a lot of fun with this book. I, I thought that it was a really a really fun adventure. W would you agree Mouse? I agree. I really liked how many characters there were and how they came out. Yeah, I think also that this book did something that... So I've seen a lot of... Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of studying. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I'm still an, an apprentice writer, right? And so I like to read a lot of writing advice, which I know that seasoned writers tell you to disregard writing advice. But personally, I still find it helpful at this stage of my, you know, writing pursuits. <laughs> and so something that I've come across often when you're talking about like writing mysteries or writing thrillers is that you never want to forget that the characters that your detective encounters, those characters have their own lives going on. They have their own motivations. They have their own wants and desires and you can't forget that like it's very easy to be writing these interactions and the other character is just kind of giving your detective information and just kind of woodenly you know answering <laughs> and you know it, it is really easy to do that but I feel like this book is a really great example of how not to do that every character that the detectives well detective and, and well, well we'll get to that in a minute but every character that our protagonists meet, they, they have things going on. They, they have, they're, they're often in a lot of difficulties or at least difficult situations, but they definitely are pretty fleshed out, I would say. And I, I find that that's a lot of fun getting to meet all these different characters. Now, I feel like we've been talking a bit around <laughs> what this story actually is. So let's get into the actual premise of Night Film. 
So essentially, our main character is an investigative journalist named Scott McGrath. I don't know why I said it that way. It's like a, it's like a classic American name. <laughs> you know what I mean? Scott McGrath. But it's just like a funny name also. Like I almost feel like you can name a, you can name a comedic character Scott McGrath. I think that's why I said it that way. But anyway, oh, can I just say something about the name? When you said it like that, it just made me think, oh, maybe the author chose it because like Scotland, you know, McGrath. So that's why it's Scott McGrath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. McGrath, I think, is the Scottish <laughs> last name, right? Yeah, 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 it is. Oh, yeah, basically named Scotty Scotland. <laughs> anyway, so our investigative journalist, he is an intrepid investigative journalist, but then some years ago, he was investigating this mysterious film director named Stanislaus Cordova. And let's just say it didn't go well. Things kind of blew up in his face. And he has since been tagged disgraced investigative journalist Scott McGrath, which is, which is not fun for him. But then one night, Cordova's daughter, Ashley, 24 years old, she turns up dead, dead as a doornail. It is ruled as a suicide, but Scott... Scotty McScotland. <laughs> Let's just call him that this episode. Let's just call him Scotty McScotland. He is he's very suspicious because people around Cordova have a habit of dying, which is why Scotty McScotland <laughs> was investigating Cordova in the first place. And so Scotty McScotland decides maybe he should get back on the Cordova case, see what's going on. And so he starts investigating. And during the course of his investigations, he kind of teams up with some random people. There is this a guy. <laughs> I've thought of many ways to describe him, but he's mostly just a guy named Hopper. I, I say a guy because he doesn't really do anything. I mean, I guess he is a drug dealer, but otherwise there, there isn't really much going on in his life. So drug dealer hopper and a 19 year old girl named Nora. At least Nora has kind of an explanation. She was one of the last people to see Ashley alive. She wants to get involved. She doesn't have much going on. She's like a aspiring actress, but they're also in New York City. So there's tons of those. Hopper, though, doesn't really have a good reason to be involved in the case. Ashley did send him this stuffed monkey shortly before she died, but Hopper doesn't really have a very good explanation at first for why she would send him that or why he wants to get involved in the case. But anyway, so the two of them team up with Scotty McScotland and they start looking more into both Ashley and, of course, her father, the director, Cordova. So yeah, so that is that is the basic premise of Night Film. Over the course of the book, they go to all kinds of places. They meet all kinds of people, but in the end, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. In the end, lots of, lots of stuff happens. The, the ending is, um, if you haven't read the book, you, you'll be surprised by what you discover once we get to the ending. I think that it's always fun to start out with the parts that we liked best. 
I'm particularly interested in books like these, like what, what specifically stands out to us, because I feel like this is going to be one of those books where there's just so much to it that I think two people can read the book and come away with very different impressions. Like, I think you'll get the same things out of it, right? Same, the same kinds of conversations about media and the creation of media and the consumption of media. But as far as the actual human level stuff going on, I think that you will end up with different impressions. Okay, so I'll go first. How about, how about we do a back and forth? So I'll name one thing I liked and then you name one thing you like. Sound good? Okay. Okay, so the first thing that I liked about this book is over the course of the book, Ashley, well, she kind of starts out as this classic, tragic, true crime victim figure, right? She's so young and she was so bright and so beautiful and she had a lot of potential. It, it's a story that if you read true crime, it comes up over and over again. And I've never really liked it because it feels very reductive. Like, you can't mourn someone just because they were human. Do they also have to be perfect as well? You know? There's that one sentence in particular, they would light up a room. You know, you read it in every true crime write-up. And it's like, would they though? Like, how, how many people do you know who could truly light up a room, right? Like, not, not that many. I'm just saying, it, it, it feels a bit cliche. Ashley does kind of start out that way, but over the course of the book, we learn so much more about her and she becomes this very complex, shadowy, kind of dark figure in her own right, almost as much as her father. And I really like that. I like that Ashley isn't reduced to cardboard essentially there there's a lot to her she was a victim in many ways but in other ways she's kind of a question mark we don't like she does bad things as well and can we really say that those outweigh the other parts of her well we don't know because we never met her and we never will and at the end of the book you're kind of left wondering well who was she really though and what would she have been like if she had been allowed to live longer and you never really know and I feel like that that's very true to life I feel like that that is very much how a lot of people would feel about true crime victims if they knew more about them so as someone who has dealt a lot in like reading true crime and like listening to true crime and watching true crime etc I really did like that that Ashley was allowed to be a fully realized human being okay mouse what is something you liked something we haven't really talked about is the format of the book it inserts a lot of mixed media like articles and other things which I thought was a really good addition yeah, right after the prologue, we immediately jump to the mixed media format. We have a bunch of online articles. <laughs> okay, this book came out in 2013, so the web formats are all very 2013, but I actually really like that. I like that we have preserved that kind of like snapshot in time. I, I, I think that that's a lot of fun. And also it gives off a real true crime feeling like you were talking about because I feel like a lot of YouTube videos or whatever about true crime feature these kinds of media. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They'll have, they'll show like these exact kinds of like articles and things. Oh yeah, I actually wanted to ask 
a question, which is what was your favorite mixed media insert in the book because there's actually a lot it's not just like articles there's also like magazines there's even like magazine covers like magazine cover mock-ups I thought those were really well done also there's like reports and like phone books and all kinds of like random things so I wanted to ask what your favorite mixed media insert was Actually, maybe this is because, like, you know, a picture says a thousand words or whatever. I thought some of the pictures were pretty striking inside of the book. Yeah, I thought the photos were very well chosen. Like, they were very evocative of the things that they were supposed to be evocative of. Like, for example, they had photos of Ashley. And in particular, one photo that was really striking to me was... There's this actress who appears in one of Cordova's films. Her name is Pat Martin, and she comes out later in the book. And there is, like, one magazine article that is supposed to be, like, the interview that she gave back in the 70s, I think, or whatever it was, shortly after she was in Cordova's film. And the reason that this is well-known is because she is one of the only people to ever talk about her experience in a Cordova film and although she doesn't say very much it's still striking because that's just how secretive everyone is. Anyway the point is that interview that she does so there's like a photo of her and she kind of like has her head on her arms kind of and like her hair is falling down one side of her face and overall that photo is really striking to me because she really does give me the vibes of like a 70s actress doing an interview and I just just like this is so well chosen the person in the picture is very striking like you could easily believe that they are a real actor at the end of the book they have photo credits and I was surprised to see that some of them were just stock photos because I was like wow that is some real stock photo picking skill because you know we, we've picked out stock photos for like various things I do for like my books and things and it, it's always a bit of a trial you know what I mean and then sometimes I pick out a stock photo and I buy it and I'm like ah oh, well this isn't really the vibe I was going for and now I have nothing to use this for it's like the waste of like $30 or whatever so it's a bit it's a bit annoying but I would guess that this author probably had help picking out the photos because they're just so well done so yeah I definitely want to commend the author on that they added a lot I think to the atmosphere of the book and the thing is I think that the reason I think that you don't see this very often is one it's difficult to pull off well but also I think you do run the risk of people criticizing you for using it a bit as a crutch these types of inserts but honestly I think that if you have confidence in your writing and you have confidence in pulling this off well I would like to see more of this I really think it adds something to the reading experience one the variety is nice on your brain right <laughs> like your brain sometimes especially with a book as long as this gets a bit tired of just reading words and the format is monotonous and it's just the same you know you turn a certain number of pages and there's a chapter turn a certain number of pages there's a chapter but with this you have something to look forward to you have something that makes you want to keep reading so that is really nice but also and I, I actually want to get to this in a bit the other thing is it makes the book feel real it makes it feel like an actual story that took place 
in the real world and I think that that is a really fun feeling particularly with mystery thrillers like these that are talking about real issues and you know things that really pertain to the real world it, it feels like a almost like a real like true crime book and I, I I just find it a lot of fun I agree and also I think it adds to the readability because often when there's like a newspaper article quoted within the text it's really or personally I find it hard to read whereas when it's like actually like a newspaper article like inserted in the book it makes it a lot more fun to read you know the worst thing is like sometimes in in um contemporary books right sometimes in the middle of the book they'll have these text message conversations but they're like those stupid fake texting bubbles right in the middle of the page you know what i'm trying to say and it looks so fake and so awkward and i'm just like ah you know this is gonna age terribly right if you're going to do that at least put in the effort like this book does and make it attractive and easy on the eyes if you're gonna do text messages and you want to do something lazy like that just render it in italics you know what i mean like i'm just saying don't make a halfway effort because then it's just cringe go all the way if you're gonna go with mixed media and your audience will actually appreciate it or i'll appreciate it i was just gonna say that my favorite mixed media insert is in the middle of the book um uh, well maybe not the middle of the book but like in the first quarter or so of the book scotty mcscotland i'm just gonna keep calling him that because it's more fun than calling him scott mcgrath anyway scotty mcscotland uh gains access to the blackboards which are like these secretive forums where all the real cordova fans are right he like finally gets onto there and when he does of course we get the mixed media inserts and i found those inserts to be my favorite in the entire book because i think that they're really cool for one thing, I love the idea of like those kinds of like secret internet forums being a big part of a story. I just think it's a lot of fun because the thing is, I find it effective. I find those kinds of forums scary in real life. You know what I mean? Like those forums where anything could happen. It's not like Reddit, which is pretty, well, there are crazy corners of Reddit, but like for the most part, it's pretty sanitized, especially the places I go to. And so the idea that there are real like dark web forums out there like this where everyone not so much where people are doing like super illegal stuff but they're just being secretive really for like no reason about this kind of special interest i don't know to me i find it like a really fun idea and a really fun plot device and i also think that the forums are designed well like it's a very clean design for the forums like it's mostly all black it's very striking and you have like this typewriter font that's in white and i just i like it a lot um so yeah i i think that that was that was a lot of fun and it's definitely my favorite mixed media insert in the book and the the forums only come out a couple of times but every time they do like it's very it's very memorable you you remember it every time the other thing though is that when you're reading the physical book, you can tell where those pages are because they're black. I, I think they only appear three times, but, well, three or four times, right? Maybe five. Five is the max, though. If they appear five times, it's max. And every time I was like, huh, so the, 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 that's coming up. That's something to look forward to. 
Okay, so speaking of the mixed media inserts, I just wanted to say that those were one of the things that made this book feel very real. I already said that. But some of the other things I thought made this book feel very real. One, all of the Cordova films, like the Cordova film universe was really well sought out and really flashed out by the author. And I thought that was like a lot of fun. And I think the reason that it's fun is that you can have all the fun of imagining it without actually having to do the heavy work. You know what I mean? You can just have it as like a cool idea. It would be really cool if this film or this book existed, but you don't actually have to do the heavy work of creating it so it can remain as good as you want it to be, right? Like <laughs> you can describe it as like this amazing work of art and everyone will believe you because it doesn't exist. So anyway, so I thought that was a lot of fun. I thought that the author did a great job thinking up all of the Cordova movies. And also I really like that there is a character in this book. His name is Beckham. No, Beckman. His name is Beckman. <laughs> and he is a professor and he studies Cordova films and I thought that was such a good touch. I think that people often forget that adding academics into your book gives it a real touch of legitimacy because it's like well if academics care about it enough to study it whether it's like movies you've made up, phenomena you've made up, whatever, it feels much more real the only thing that was missing was like a Cordova-focused academic conference. I could have spent like an entire chapter there. That would have been so fun. <laughs> and then the other thing that I thought was really real was that the entire reason Scott gets involved... Oh, Scott! I mean, Scotty McScotland! <laughs> the entire reason he gets involved in investigating Cordova in the first place is because he comes across this organization that is trying to ban access to Cordova's films. And we'll get more into why later on, but basically, I just thought that it was really real. Like, there are organizations like that in real life. Like, for example, there was like a group of moms who wanted to ban brat dolls back in the early 2000s. And there are people who want to ban violent video games or like whatever. But people react really strongly to media and people often protest or boycott or organize against media. That's how powerful of a force it is and how much of a hold it has on our imaginations. And I think that this was really interesting. Honestly, I think it would have been cool if the organization had played more of a role in the book. I think that could have added an interesting dimension to the story. Of course, it didn't happen, but I, I do think that that could have been cool. Mouse, do you, do you have anything that you liked? I think I, I want to add a little bit to that and just say that I think it was also interesting how, like, despite these films being banned, they were really popular. I think that's something that we see in real, in the real life, too. Like, I've heard, like, oh, people were fainting in the first screening of Dracula, like back in the 30s or whatever, and that made it all the more popular. Yeah, like in real life. <laughs> okay, have you ever heard of the Anarchist's Cookbook? Okay, so basically the idea with the Anarchist Cookbook is that it teaches you to like make bombs and stuff. And apparently if you buy a copy of the book, you get put on a watch list. And so it's like, 
informally banned. You know what I mean? Like, I've never seen it being sold anywhere. So I think it's also hard to get copies. But people will, like, acquire copies. And the, and they think it makes them all edgy. Like, I have a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook. And I always find that so funny. But that really reminds me of the Cordova movies in this book. For those of you who haven't read the book, if you haven't read the book, why are you listening to the episode? But anyway, <laughs> for those of you who haven't read the book, essentially Cordova's movies, especially his later ones, not his earlier ones that were done with Warner Brothers, but this makes it sound so real gosh anyway so the ones that he put out later were so extreme that warner brothers didn't want to be associated and so he produced them independently and now they're known as cordova's black tapes and the only way you can buy them is through like shady people on the internet essentially in these forums and so that that's what we were talking about so yeah the anarchist cookbook in many ways reminds me of this type of phenomenon but yeah you're right it's very it's very real okay uh here's something i liked so there's a part of the book where scott and co scotty mcscotland and co they break into cordova's estate the peak Oh, so basically the idea is nobody's seen Cordova for years and years. Nobody's even sure if he's alive anymore. But the thing is, he had shot himself away on this estate in upstate New York called The Peak. And that was where he did everything. That was where he lived. That was where he filmed his movies, etc., etc. So at uh, just about the halfway point of the book, I think, maybe a little past that, they break into The Peak. And while they're there, of course, they get separated. <laughs> well, what, what kind of story would this be if they didn't get separated? Am I right? But they get separated and Scott finds himself in the film sets. He ends up in the film sets of Cordova's movies. And so he kind of has this like exploration chase, like whatever, you know, adventure through the film sets. And I thought that was so much fun partially because I think film sets are really cool in the first place like I think they're so cool because the thing is on screen they often look very complete but in real life they're like dollhouses right like they look very fake if you're there in real life but on screen they manage to look convincing and complete and that to me that dichotomy has always been so interesting that aspect of make-believe so yeah so there there is that but also of course just as everyone in the book is obsessed with Cordova's movies, like that mystique definitely bleeds through the story and it gets to you as you're reading it. So you kind of understand the almost reverence that Scott feels as he's wandering through these film sets. You're like, oh, like these, these movies were filmed here. Like this is where everything happens. Like all the stuff that we were trying to figure out, like this is the place that happened and you know you you kind of resonate with scott's feelings and that is so cool that this book is able to evoke those kinds of emotions in you so yeah i i found that part of the book to be a lot of fun and honestly i i think i'd like to visit some film sets someday like those sound like so cool you know what i mean but yeah anyway so that was also something that i liked what about you mouse Okay, this is going to sound a little bit silly, but I feel like to add on to what you were saying, one thing I liked about this book was like the fan service. 
it's kind of weird to say it, but like they'll talk about something, but then they'll like revisit it and like elaborate on it. For instance, they keep on mentioning an interview that Cordova did and later on in, within the mixed media, they pull it up and show it. Or like you were talking about, they keep on talking about the films and like you find resolution within the scenes where Scott's like going through the film sets. The interview you mentioned that Cordova did, so it's his final interview and it's like the last known image of him. So actually something I kind of want to discuss, I don't know if we have it in our notes, but something I want to discuss when we get to the ending is the choice to have that interview be the final thing in the book. Those are the last pages in this story. And I found that to be a really interesting artistic choice. As you say, it's very fan service but also it's so annoying because the thing is, you know what I thought? So I knew there was like a magazine thing at the very end. You know what I thought it was? I thought it was like Scott's story. You know what I mean? Like him writing up his investigation into Cordova. Like I thought that was what it was and I was really looking forward to it because I thought it would give us some resolution. But no, it's just the friggin' interview that they keep referencing throughout the book. And I think that's such an interesting artistic choice. Let's talk about it some more when we get to the discussion of the ending because I think I kind of get it and uh, in a way like it's smart partially because of the content of the interview. I'm thinking of a quote specifically that Cordova gives but anyway the point is it's so infuriating but also perfect in a way so that that describes the ending to this book I think. Or really the book as a whole, like so many things in this book, you're like, I don't really get it and I don't think I'm supposed to. And that's fine because that's the point. <laughs> but yeah, we, we should definitely get back to that. Okay, so then my final thing that I liked about this book, you knew I was going to bring it up, the conversations that this book has about media and our relationship to media as consumers in particular, I thought that the obsession that not only Scott, but really everyone has with how much of Cordova's films were real, how much of the pain and suffering is real, and does that make his art better? That feels really similar to conversations that people have about directors like Alfred Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick. In particular, those actors, I mean directors, <laughs> See, this is one of those things I'm so glad I caught myself. Sometimes I'm editing, I'm like, ah, I misspoke, but there's no way to fix that now. So annoying whenever I come across that. Anyway, the point is, so those kinds of directors, Hitchcock and Kubrick in particular, they obviously made some of the most famous and important movies of all time. But in recent years, we've been revisiting how they treated their actors, particularly the women, the way that they treated their actresses in many cases was, I mean, I would say abusive, maybe even close to, well, I'm, I won't quite say torture, but like, if I were in that situation, I would find it torturous. Like some of the ordeals that they were put through were... I mean, I would say not good. <laughs> I don't think you should do that to your actors. But there are a lot of conversations that people have about, well, if those actresses hadn't been put through that, would they still have been able to create such great films? And to me, you know what I say? There's a famous story about method acting where I forget who the people involved were. 
But basically, one day, there's, like, an older, famous British actor and, like, a younger, up-and-coming American actor, right? The American actor comes onto set and he's like, oh my god, I'm exhausted, I haven't slept in three days because that's the role he's about to play. And the older actor says to him, have you ever considered acting? And that's kind of how I feel. Like, I don't think you need a real emotional breakdown to simulate an emotional breakdown. Like, maybe it feels more real, but maybe that's only because you know that the actress actually went through an emotional breakdown. Like, you don't know. I think that there can definitely be great acting without putting your actors through so much, but that's the conversation that this book is having. That's why people are so obsessed because you want resolution to that question, right? You want to know if Cordova's films are so great because there's real feeling there or are they great despite the real feeling not being there? They're so intense and emotion grabbing that you feel like they must be real. That's Scott's obsession. But at the same time, you never know. Like, that's never resolved. So, yeah, I, I actually thought that those conversations were very interesting. And I think in particular, this quote from the book really sums up what I'm trying to say. At this point, all that I accepted as truth was that somehow I'd been artfully set up. Beginning, I sensed, with Ashley appearing that night at the reservoir. Oh, this is a reference to, in the prologue, Scott sees a woman kind of stalking him and he later learns that that was Ashley right before her death. But why or how it had been planned or executed, whether or not the witnesses we'd tracked down had even been telling the truth about Ashley's behavior, what was real, what wasn't, I didn't know anymore. Could something be real when all evidence of it was gone? Was something categorically true? if it lived on only in your head, same as your dreams? Cordova, in his life and art, had blended fantasy and reality, and so he seemed to be flagrantly showing off to me, much to my chagrin, such as intermingling of truth and fiction. Perhaps it was his way of underscoring for me not just his superiority, that he was beyond unmasking, that I never catch him, but that in some cases, the biggest truth about a family about a person's life was the fantasy, and it was only a simple man's mind that craved one being tidily distinguished from the other. So I think that that is a pretty good summation of this book's thoughts about like life and art and the intersection that may or may not exist between them. Returning to the organization that we were discussing earlier, so the reason that the organization exists is because there was this little girl who was kidnapped and murdered by a man who was essentially being a copycat of the murderer in one of Cordova's films. And obviously the case is very tragic, right? But the question that the book is asking is, is this organization justified? And I feel like this is a bit of a philosophical question in a way because it's pushing the argument to its extreme. Do violent video games cause violence? I don't really think that there has been any correlation in the real world per se. Like, I don't think anyone playing Call of Duty has suddenly, you know, gone out and mowed people down in real life. But in the case of this book and these pieces of media, 
in this book that has actually happened like someone inspired by one of Cordova's movies has taken the life of an eight-year-old girl an eight-year-old child and so taken to that extreme so the thing is right something that I have observed in online spaces is that for example people who say that they are against capital punishment the minute that they learn about someone who has been, well, as bad as you can get, basically, really inhumanly bad, those people will suddenly say, I don't believe in capital punishment, but I think this guy should not exist, basically. And I have often found that to be really instructive as to how our minds work, right? Because, for example, you can take an ethical or philosophical position. For example, censorship is bad, all media should be allowed to exist, etc. But then, for example, if you had a real-life case like this, right, would you be able to still maintain that position? would your ethics or philosophy be strong enough to withstand the emotion of seeing this harm come to someone? And I don't know, I feel like that that's an interesting line of thought to pursue, mostly because I don't know myself. I think my position on it is I think it's important to allow wiggle room, right? Like, I don't think you need to take hardline stances on everything all the time. I think you can always be growing and learning and revising your opinions. I don't think you need to decide once and live by that the rest of your life. Or worse, decide and then suddenly take a hardline turn the opposite direction and then just stick to that your entire life. I feel like people tend to be one or the other and I don't think that's good. I think everyone needs to allow more nuance into their life and into their thinking and into the way that they perceive the world. And I think that is the core crux of this. Okay, mouse, that, that was really long and discursive. I'm sorry about that. I, I do apologize. It, it looks like we may really be sitting here until 2 a.m. <laughs> is there anything that you want to add about like parts that you really liked before we move on to our next topic no let's go on actually sorry i have one other thing i really like okay i okay this is really random and really specific but in this book there are two sisters well they're sisters <laughs> not two sisters but anyway whatever um their names are olivia indicott and marlo hughes Okay, I really love the part where they first, like, get explained. It feels very much like old Hollywood history, you know what I mean? But it's all made up. And I just love, like, it's like a couple of pages of, like, explanation, but it's just, like, told so well, and it's, like, so juicy and drama and gossip, and it's like, this is what I want. I'd actually read an entire fictional book that, that that's just like that. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of story. I would eat that up. <laughs> and it really, like, points to how well, like, this book uses tropes. It capitalizes on tropes really well. I agree. Like, I'm a trope girl 100%. Like, I love my tropes. Like, give me my tropes. But there is such a thing as... Okay, here's, here's the thing about tropes. You build a story first, then you judiciously 
use your tropes, right? Like, I feel like so many people these days try to build a story off of tropes, and you can't do that. That doesn't end up well. Well, I mean, it can be enjoyable to read, but you're not going to leave any lasting impact. But when you use them well, then you're like, yes, then you're satisfying that part of my brain that wasn't expecting the trope, but then it came along and I really liked it. And I'm like, yes, you are a good writer. That's weird. So many people look down on tropes, but actually, if you know how to use your tropes well, that's a sign you're a good writer. But yeah, no, that's really smart. Thank you for pointing that out. I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah, no, you're totally right. Now let's move on to things that we think could have been done better. And Mouse, it is time for your quiz. Okay, the thing is, the thing that made this book so hard to read for both of us is that the friggin' italics are literally everywhere and they are so annoying. If the italics make you put this book down, we, we don't blame you. We don't blame you one bit. I almost DNF this book over the italics because there are italics literally everywhere and for no reason. If someone could go through and just take out the italics and sell me a version of this that has no italics, I'd pay any amount of money for that. Okay? Please and thank you. If anyone with any power to do that is listening, please do it. Your readers are begging you. I totally agree on the italics, and I also want to say it detracts from the authenticity because I don't feel like an investigative journalist would do that. Yeah, and also it takes away from, like, the actual writing itself, which is good. Like, the the writing, like, in parts was really standout and well done, but, like, then you have the italics, which just kind of cheapen it and make it feel silly, which isn't, which isn't what you want, okay? <laughs> Good good job on the, the book, but like the italics, mm -mm. no, definitely not. We, we hate your italics. Okay. All right, mouse, italics quiz, italics quiz. <laughs> no, don't worry. Okay. Face palm. Okay. No peeking. No peeking. No peeking. Okay. So here's how this is going to work. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the book. I have a couple of excerpts here. So then, first off, you are going to guess how many italics are in the passage. So here's what I would suggest you do. So I'm going to read the excerpt slowly for you. So just tally along in your head, like which words you think are italicized. Okay, so first you're going to say for me how many italics you think there are in the passage. And then afterward, we'll read through it again and you'll tell me which words you think are italicized. Does that make sense? Yes. Ah, I knew you were a smart cookie. Okay, <laughs> here is excerpt one. Okay, listen carefully. Uh, I'm going to have to read this expressionlessly, which is going to be so hard. Okay. <laughs> he died of a brain aneurysm. Don't you see? It's a trend. Olivia had one and Larry, both after they'd encountered Ashley. Did I read that slowly enough for you? So how many italics? One. One? <laughs> no. Okay. It's actually six. <laughs> okay. All right. Now I'm going to read through it again. And then you, with the new knowledge that it's six italics, right? How's this going to work? So just like keep track of the words in your head that you think are italicized. Can you do that? I'll shout out every time I hear an italicized word. Okay, that works better. Okay. No peeking, remember? He died. One. Nope. <laughs> okay, no italics. 
No italics so far. Okay. He died of a brain aneurysm. Do you think any of those are italicized? No. All of them are italicized. <laughs> that entire phrase is italicized. Of a brain aneurysm. Okay, that's four italics. Okay, so I only have to find two more. Okay, yeah, great. okay. <laughs> okay, so he died of a brain aneurysm. Don't you see? And Don't you see? See, see has italics. No, it doesn't actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. He died of a brain aneurysm. Don't you see? It's a trend. Trend. Yes. Okay. The first thing you've gotten right. <laughs> that that was the, the the that was what I had thought was italicized. Yes. To yes. begin with, that was oh, like okay. the one word I was like. Well, oh. you were right. You were right. Okay. Olivia had one and Larry italics. Yes or no? And no. <laughs> I got you. Okay. Both after they'd encountered Ashley. You're you're missing one italic. I'm, one italicized word. There, well, there we go. One italicized word. <laughs> Both. Both. Yes. All right. Okay. There we go. Okay. Ready for excerpt two? Wow. This is so hard because there's so many words that I italicized. <laughs> I can't believe she italicized the entire sentence of a brain aneurysm. Technically, it's not a sentence. It's a sentence fragment. <laughs> okay. Okay. Here's excerpt two. Okay. So first, you're going to count. You know, count. Yeah. You can count. I called her every half hour, wondering how in the hell my ex-wife decided to trust a woman who ended her name in I. She might as well have hired someone named Ibiza or Tequila. Finally, at 2.30, Stacy called. Did I read that too fast? No. Okay, I guess five. It's 15. This is the point where I hope the author is listening or, like, someone who can tell the author or, like, notify the author because I think this is a perfect illustration of how ridiculous the italics usage is. <laughs> okay, so let's let's go through and try to figure out where the italics are. I'm sorry to put you through this, Mouse. I know you didn't sign up for this. Double face palm. <laughs> okay. All right, let's do this. I called her every half hour. Every half hour. No. <laughs> okay. Wondering how in the hell my ex-wife... How in the hell? Yes! All right. So that's four down. Eleven to go. I called her every half hour, wondering how in the hell my ex-wife decided to trust a woman... Decided to trust a woman. Any italics there? Trust. No! <laughs> okay. Decided to trust a woman... Who ended her name in I? Ended her name in I. No. <laughs> she might as well have hired someone named Ibiza or Tequila. Might as well. The entire sentence is italicized. <laughs> and that's actually 15 right there. That was tricky, right? I should have guessed just by counting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this one's going to be tricky too. I'm sorry about it. Oh, uh, you're almost done. You're almost done. Okay, ready to count? My shock over what he'd just done quickly turned to outrage. I should have known he'd be reckless, follow his own private agenda. I had every intention of going after him, dragging him back. When I froze, a dog was barking. It sounded close. How many italics? Twelve. Oh, 
this is the first time you've overestimated. There's only six italics. Ah, I knew I had to mix it up a bit, you see? <laughs> I'm sorry to make this so hard on you. Okay, well, let's figure out where the italics are. My shock over what he'd just done quickly turned to outrage. No italics. Very good. You're catching on. I should have known he'd be reckless. Follow his own private agenda. Should have known. Actually, only known. I should have known he'd be reckless. Follow his own private agenda. So there's one there. I had every intention of going after him, dragging him back, when I froze. Froze? No. <laughs> no italics there. <laughs> A dog was barking. All in italics. Yes! Okay. So that's one, two, three, four, five. Five. It's one more. It sounded close. Close. Yeah! <laughs> Oh, everyone give Mouse a round of applause! Woo! I think your reading was the part that made it too evident. Oh, no! See, I'm really trying to keep the emotion out, but italics are hard because you want to read the emotion in them. Ugh. Okay, one last one. One last one. And then you're free. You never have to do this again. Okay, let's count. I grabbed the iron doorknob. Noticing it was in the form of an elegant and rather sinister R for Reinhardt, and heaved the door open. How many? Two. <gasps> yes! Wow. Okay, this is the only time you guessed correctly. I am so proud of you. Okay, do you want me to read through the sentence again? I'm sure I got the two wrong, but... Okay. I grabbed the iron doorknob. Grabbed. No. Okay, for this one, it's actually the words, because I would never guess in a million years. If I if it were the other way around, I wouldn't guess. Okay, it's not that. I grabbed the iron doorknob, right? So nothing there. Noticing it was in the form... Italics? No. Yes. Yeah, no italics there. Noticing it was in the form of an elegant and rather sinister R for Reinhardt. Italics? Sinister and elegant. Okay, this is the tricky part. The two italicized words are rather and sinister. <laughs> you never guessed that, right? Sinister, maybe. But who would guess the rather of an elegant and rather sinister? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mouse. I don't know why I'm doing this to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> two was an entirely random guess. I know. But that that's all you can do, like randomly guess. I just wanted to, to show our 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 hapless audience how insane the italics are in this book. I'm sorry I had to do it through you though. That 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 wasn't very fair. <laughs> okay. So things that we think could have done been done better. So one is the italics. Something I'm gonna point out is that this book is definitely written in twenty thirteen. There's only one gay character. Cordova's either bi or pan, but like he's not the best. And I'm I'm just my thing is the gay character isn't a good person by any stretch of the imagination. And um it just feels very 2013. Also, there's like a twist, basically, that that um Scott, Scotty McScotland, ends up at like a drag bar or something like that, right? And it's like treated um not well <laughs> and it's just very 2013 and it's kind of like well this definitely wasn't written you know this year but 2013 was 10 years ago so i'm not gonna say it's excusable and it is disappointing in a book that otherwise i think is pretty good but 
you know, it's there, and what, what are you going to do about it, you know? <laughs> so. Complain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what are we going to do about it? We're going to hold the book accountable. We're going to point it out, and we're going to, we're not going to ignore it. You know, sometimes when I'm talking about books I like and I'm pointing out their flaws, I kind of wish I didn't have to do it. But that feels intellectually dishonest. And also it makes me uncomfortable because what if someone reads the book because I'm like gushing about it and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know this was in here. Like this makes me uncomfortable. And then I would feel guilty because like th it's not like it makes me feel good. You know, it makes me uncomfortable too. Like I, I would rather didn't have this kind of content as well. It's kind of similar to how I feel about the Goldfinch, like some of the stuff in there. I, I know it's not the author doing that or thinking that way. And it's just the characters like thinking that way. But I don't think it adds anything to the story is the thing. And I wish it wasn't in there. And I do think there is only so far that you can take the, well, it was written like 10 or 20 years ago excuse. So, okay. So that, that is something that I didn't really like. Um, and there's a whole conversation to be had there, but uh, let's not get into it today. I don't, I don't think this is a book that deserves it. Like it's, these parts aren't great, but they're certainly worse offenders. So. Yeah, but I definitely think this is, like, the misuse of tropes because just as this author does a good job using tropes, they also use tropes in a slightly offensive way, I think. Like, for instance, as we were talking about Cordova, the by rake. Yes, that's very true. I didn't think about that, but you're right. It is certainly a trope for, like, bi or pan people to, to be represented as unusually promiscuous. Like, that's just in their nature. And that's a very, very harmful trope that, you know, the author is better than this. She didn't, she didn't have to go there. <laughs> but you're, you're definitely right. I didn't think of it that way. But yeah, definitely. That's the pitfall of tropes, right? You need to stop and think about where the tropes come from and what they mean and their wider implications. And, you know, make sure that your tropes aren't stereotypes, right? Mouse, is there anything you want to point out as something that you didn't really like or that you think could have been done better? Yeah, I think I just want to add on to that and say, like, representation in general is not very good in this book. For instance, there are a lot of immigrants in this book and they aren't represented very well. Yeah, so at one point, um, Scotty McScotland <laughs> and crew show up at this apartment building and the immigrants living there are largely Asian immigrants and they are not represented well. They're all represented as being, like sex workers and child abusers and in general they don't seem to be nice people they're like not very empathetic or nice and also like there's cordova who is from an immigrant family and there's not a lot of counterbalancing um immigration representation actually okay there kind of is there is that one asian family who runs like the grocery store or whatever who's like super invested in like helping to find Ashley. But that in and of itself is a bit iffy to me because it also lacks nuance. I think the thing that we miss out on a lot when it comes to representation is not that we want, for example, like people of color or queer characters that are unambiguously good. That in and of itself isn't really what I look for. What I look for is nuanced characters, like allow them to be human instead of unambiguously evil or unambiguously good. I think it's 
harmful in and of itself when you can only fall into one or the other extreme because that shows like a mindset of well I'm treating these characters differently these characters really are just tropes is the problem right and I I think that that is certainly harmful now I'm kind of reassessing what I said earlier because I do still think that all of the characters they encounter along the way have their own motivations and their own things going on but like I think I said earlier something about them being fully fleshed out people and I'm reconsidering that like some of them are for example like I would say like Olivia Endicott and other more high profile people like people who are in general like white and wealthy and a bit upper class so those people are definitely given the treatment of being fully fleshed out but if you're a minor character you're an immigrant you're you know queer queer yeah then you're definitely not given the same leeway you're not given the same treatment and that is definitely something that is not not good <laughs> yeah yeah definitely i think that's an important thing to point out for example if you look at like olivia or marlo hughes like those characters are not unambiguously good or evil they just are the way they are because of their life and their circumstances and there's a lot of work put into their characters which isn't the same grace that's afforded to other characters which yeah so th thank you for pointing that out mouse that that is certainly important and you know it's always fun to have these conversations and find out you're re you're revising your opinions in real time it's a surreal feeling <laughs> Okay, something I'm going to point out is that for a protagonist in this kind of mystery thriller book, Scott is not very likable, but this may be intentional as we'll get to later, but it was definitely a bit of a surprise for me. And I think the reason it's a bit of a surprise is because this book is in the first person, like he is narrating this story to us. And I think what, what it is, is... Okay, here's the thing about these kinds of first-person stories. The issue is that you are trapped inside of that character's head for the entirety of the book. At the beginning, I didn't really have that much of an opinion about Scott, but there were some things that kind of stuck with me, and as we got further and further into the book, I kept kind of questioning my own judgment. I was like, why is this not a bigger deal? Like, why are we just kind of glossing over this? And we'll, we'll get to this later. But as we got further into the book, I realized I don't really like this guy. And it's annoying when you start to feel that way because there is no way to get outside of that perspective in this kind of story. It actually kind of reminds me, I read Girl on the Train or Girl on a Train by Paula, Paula Hawkins, which is like the mega best-selling thriller that came out back in 2017 it got made into a big budget movie and everything and I was really excited to finally get around to it but I actually ended up finding it really mediocre and annoying and it was solely well it wasn't solely but it was largely due to the fact that the character the main character she's an alcoholic and she's super depressed and her life is going down the drain and I hated being trapped in that perspective because it's the same thing every single time she's like I'm gonna get better I'm gonna get better I'm gonna get better but she never gets better and it's realistic but is it something that I want to experience for the entirety of a book 
no, not really. <laughs> the, the, the other reason I didn't like it was because I didn't feel like anything happened until the very end. And by that point, I had already kind of figured out what was going on. I was like, oh, well, that's the only real possibility here. And it was just kind of... <sighs> It was, it was a disappointment. When you read a really popular book that you were looking forward to and you're like, why does everyone love this again? <laughs> what well, wasn't how I expected to feel about it. So Scott was kind of the same way. Fortunately, the story did move along at a fast enough pace. And most of the time, like Scott in and of, its, uh, in and of himself is not that important in terms of like his perspective and things. So it wasn't too bad. Like I certainly enjoyed myself for most of the way, but... I don't like him. <laughs> I don't like him. That's why I'm calling him Scotty McScallion because he doesn't doesn't reserve the deserve doesn't deserve the respect of his real name. So there's good old Scotty that I didn't really like. What about you, Mouse? Anything you want to point out that you didn't really like or think you could have think you could have done better? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you take the editor's seat here. What 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 are you penciling in the margins? That's a fun way to think about it. Here, imagine this is a red pen. You're squibbling in the margins. I feel like well, we're definitely going to talk about this more, but there are just so many things that are left hanging. I would have liked some more resolution. So if I were an editor, I would be like, add something, please. <laughs> yeah. In particular, I would say that there are so many moments in this book where Scott's like, huh, this is like a huge coincidence. Gosh, how lucky I am. And you feel like that's supposed to be pointing to a larger thing, but then it's just kind of never addressed again and I get that that's kind of okay maybe it's lampshading like you you know what lampshading is oh so it's a thing <laughs> this is a term I picked up from like uh YouTube so I mean correct me if I'm wrong but essentially like in old movies it was like a comedy moment where for example a character maybe I'm like completely wrong but a character would like put a lampshade over their head and pretend to be a lamp you know what I mean? It's, like, very obvious. And then, um, wait, maybe I'm, like, completely remembering this wrong. Anyway, if I'm, if I'm completely remembering this wrong, then at least this will make, like, an amusing fabrication. <laughs> like, I am spreading my own misinformation. My own version of an urban legend. Okay, this is fun. Anyway, this is my own mythology. This is what lampshading means to me. This is the 2AM Book Review Club's definition of lampshading, okay? So it's like in old movies where a character puts a lampshade over their head and it's very obvious that they're not a lamp. But then, to make it obvious, another character will, like, come running along, look around, can't see them, lifts up the lampshade, drops it back down, and runs off. So it's pointing out the absurdity of this character pretending to be a lampshade, by like pointing it out like just saying we know it's absurd you're just gonna have to accept it so this could be an example of lampshading or it could feed into our special conspiracy theory that we will be unveiling later in this episode i'm actually really excited for that i think we have come up with a brilliant conspiracy theory that explains everything about this book well maybe not everything but a lot of things a lot of things that don't make sense will be explained by our conspiracy theory. You you thought you were getting a spooky book. No, you're getting a conspiracy book. No, you thought you were getting a spooky book discussion. No, you're getting a conspiracy book discussion. <laughs> this is no longer the spooky book support club. This is the spooky book conspiracy club. We read spooky books and come up with conspiracy theories. <laughs> okay, 
I'm also going to point out that there's so much focus on Cordova and so much focus on the women who seem to die around him, like his wives keep dying. But here's the thing. What about them? Like, why do we never get the humanization of these women? Why? Like, especially Ashley's mother. If Ashley is such a pivotal character and Cordova is, then Ashley's mother should also be a pivotal character, but she isn't. And I feel like this is playing a bit too much into the mystique surrounding like famous men. And maybe this is just like me being biased because I love reading about stories of women. Like the, the saying like, I don't like this saying, but behind every great man is, you know, a great woman. I like reading about the women behind the men. Like I love... <laughs> you're like face palming um but anyway you know what i mean like i love books that bring to light those women and talk about them and not just the men all the time so i think that's why i really wish we had gotten more on the women in cordova's life because i think they deserve it i mean as it is like this is the definitive record of cordova and his world this is all we're gonna get because it's the author's invention and we're never going to get to learn any more about them. And I think that that's kind of sad. All we really get for them is like names and pedigrees. And it's like, that's it? That's really all you're going to give us? Okay, so now before we move on to speculation, I want to have a bit of a random discussion time. So this is where we can throw out any random thoughts that we have about this book. Okay, before we get to our grand conspiracy <laughs> theories. Okay, I discovered something about this book. I discovered something about this book. This takes place in an alternate universe. Let me, let me explain what I mean. So, num number one, at the 1980 Academy Awards, Cordova wins Best Director. That, that, that's rewriting history right there. Another thing, in one of Cordova's movies, there's a very important briefcase that is never opened. And to forestall, this is a, this is true lampshading. This is true lampshading. But in the text, it says that Tarantino copied this for his movie Pulp Fiction. The audacity. The audacity. By the way, have you seen Pulp Fiction? I watched it recently. No, I haven't. Okay, it's weird. Not as weird as some of Tarantino's other movies. I, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was really clever. <laughs> like, you need me to say that about Tarantino movie. Uh, I'm just sitting here like, yeah, yeah, it was clever. Like, this this unknown movie, Pulp Fiction, you ever heard of it? <laughs> I, I think he's, like, an underground figure, you know? Like, mm -hmm. not, not like those mainstream movies. <laughs> I get to do it. Okay, so, if that's not enough proof for you, guess what? In this alternate universe, John Lennon survives. John Lennon of the Beatles survives. You know how I know that? How? You should have been paying closer attention to those mixed media inserts. So, so in one of the articles, okay, one of the articles is pulled from like a website and you know how websites will suggest like other articles or like at the top they'll have like headlines. One of the headlines, John and Yoko talk Beatles breakup. See, John Lennon survives in this alternate universe. What year is this article dated? It, it's recent. It's an article about, like, Ashley's death. <laughs> yes. The face you are making. The shock. Yes. And see, this is where it pays to be an observant reader. I 
I picked up on this and nobody else probably ever has. I meant to go through and like look at the other mixed media like uh, websites and things to see if I could catch anything else like that, but I forgot I ran out of time. You're the kind of person that belongs on blackboards. You're right, you're right. I'd have a I'd have a I'd have a great time there. The the only thing is, you know it'll paralyze me. So I'm really bad at choosing usernames in general. And on the blackboards, I have to choose a username that fits within like the Cordova universe. Decision paralysis. I would never be able to create an account because I'd be like, what do I choose? What do I choose? I'd never be able to do it. Okay. Any other random things you want to talk about? You know, hearing you say that, you know how we were talking about in the beginning? What genre is this book? So, like, what do you think? What genre do you think this is? Because right now when I was listening to you talk about this, I was like, this is fantasy, actually. You know, it fits so well with, like, the fantasy books I've been reading. In an earlier episode, we talked about the Jasmine Throne, and you told me it was fantasy, and I was shocked. But this book is just like that. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, urban fantasy, I guess. What do I think? I'm gonna classify this as a literary thriller with magical realism elements here's what here's why i say that i'm being very precise here i don't agree that it's a mystery mysteries have to have resolution mysteries have to have explanation that is the promise that you have going into the genre it's like romance romance has to have a happy ever after or a happy for now if you don't have those things it's not romance genre romance category romance you can't sell it as a romance novel you, you can't what if one of the characters dies because i feel like i've read romance books like that that that's not category romance you couldn't sell it i know what you're thinking like me before you by jojo moyes for example is often classified as romance but that's not category romance harlequin wouldn't sell it harlequin wouldn't touch it that that's much more of like contemporary fiction contemporary fiction with romance or something like that you can't sell it as romance everyone would hate you nobody would buy it <laughs> what about the fault in our stars that's why that's just classic YA fiction that that's contemporary YA. when i read it i thought i was like a grown-up like reading romance no are you kidding they're just a bunch of dramatic teenagers Although they, they, they can be dramatic if they want. They have cancer. I mean, I'm not begrudging them the drama, but like, I begrudge no one drama. I want all my uh, fictional characters to have drama. I thrive off fictional drama. Honestly, I find real life drama amusing too, as long as no one is getting hurt. I'm a, I'm a drama connoisseur. Okay, wait, what were we talking about? Drama. Oh yeah. Okay, so that's why I don't call it mystery. I call it thriller instead, because thriller, you can have it open-ended. You don't need conclusive evidence for thrillers and i say literary specifically because it's so heavily reliant on like themes and things and like commentary and also it's kind of written that way this isn't written the way that category thrillers are written category thrillers are short sentences often in the present tense and the beginnings and endings of chapters often have hooks to keep you going so, literary thriller with magical realism. I say magical realism because I wouldn't really call it fantasy, and the reason I don't really call it fantasy is because it doesn't really feel like it. <laughs> to me, it doesn't really feel like it. Yeah, I don't really see it. For me, it's magical realism. It's just too soft 
and not quite real enough for it to be fantasy. I feel like for it to be fantasy, the magic has to be more categorically real. There's only like one tiny piece of evidence in this entire book that the magic is actually real. And to me, that's really not enough to call it fantasy. It's magical realism. But that, that's a really interesting um, discussion because notice that neither of us are giving it the title of horror. <laughs> neither of us are going to classify this as horror because it's not. And you may be asking why it's in the spooky book support club because it is spooky. If you, if you like spooky books, I think you'll like this. You know what I mean? And it's scary. This is one of those books that's weird. It's infused with like spooks and scares because of the whole Cordova thing and he makes like those types of movies but it doesn't really happen so much. So <laughs> it's like weird. You know what I mean? You're always kind of like, hmm. And that's why I think it's so interesting that Scott thinks he's in a Cordova film towards the end of the movie. He's like, oh my God, I'm in a Cordova film. And I'm like, nobody's getting dismembered here. No one's getting murdered. I, I don't know why you think you're in a Cordova film. It certainly doesn't seem dark enough. But anyway, we're going to get to that in a bit. So we, we have thoughts on that conversation and all of the things because it, it, it's it's a big part of our conspiracy theory. All right. Now, we are going to talk about the ending. So the ending of this book is, hmm, it's it's layered. We'll, we'll put it that way. Okay. So basically, Cordova has an assistant who is known as the Coyote. That's not her real name, but that's what she's called. So she meets with Scott towards the end of the book. She explains that Ashley committed suicide because she was terminally ill. She had had cancer since she was a child and essentially she was going to die in the near future. So she decided to commit suicide and go ahead and get it over with. And that is upsetting to Scott because... So the conclusion they came to throughout the book <laughs> is that Ashley was cursed, which, okay. Basically, the thought process that everyone had, you know, believed in by the end of the book went something like, so there was this bridge called the Devil's Bridge, right? And essentially, the myth of the Devil's Bridge is that the first soul to cross it belongs to the devil. Like the first person to cross it, their soul belongs to the devil and they are forever cursed. So essentially this bridge was constructed by Cordova and like the townspeople, like they were meddling in dark magic. And so uh, one night Ashley crossed the bridge and she was cursed and she was like turning into the devil essentially. And so she went ahead and committed suicide. But the coyote's like, no, 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 no. Ashley was terminally ill. She had cancer. And as for Cordova himself, she says that he is now in a nursing home. He left the peak a long time ago. He's very sad about Ashley's death. And now, now he's in a nursing home to live out his old age. So that is ending number one. But then some, some time passes. Scott, Scotty McScotland, he figures out that she was lying about Cordova, that he is not the guy that he met in the nursing home, because Scott actually goes to the nursing home to meet Cordova, but that's not him. Cordova is actually on this remote island in the middle of nowhere, so Scott flies out and ends up at the island and meets Cordova, and the book ends 
there. We, we don't know what happens after they meet. Okay, Mouse, are you ready? Are you ready to unveil our conspiracy theory? What does this ending mean? There are two possibilities. One, Cordova is evil, just as Scott always said. Or, drum roll please, ready? Oh, actually there's a third possibility that- You're ruining my buildup! <laughs> okay, fine. What, what is the third? The second possibility that the book gives us is like, you know, that Ashley just had cancer. Like, Inez Gallo's story is like 99% correct. Here's our conspiracy theory. Um, drum roll! Yes, drum roll please. Scott is the evil one all along. Yes, Scott is the evil one all along. That, that, that is our grand conspiracy theory, and we are going to prove it point by point. Now, I acknowledge that they could both be evil, but I don't think that would work thematically. So first, we're going about this very scientifically. First, we're going to disprove that it's both of them. Here, here's why that doesn't work, right? So there is this pivotal conversation that Scott has with Beckman towards the end of the book, about the possibility of him being inside of a Cordova movie. Basically, Backman is like, well, if you're in a Cordova movie, then essentially there's like, I picked this up also from like reading the descriptions of Cordova movies, but it's like, there's usually like a good force and an evil force, right? And the evil force, well, the evil people are like pulled down by the weight of what they've done and so i don't think that both of them being evil is going to be the resolution like i don't i don't think that's the solution here okay let's go through point by point why scott is actually the evil one and not cordova okay are we ready first of all this book is written from his perspective as we keep mentioning this is his narrative. It is biased in his favor. And as we keep pointing out, there are things that don't add up in his narrative. Little moments where he's like, oh, that's a coincidence. That's a surprise. How did that happen? And there's no explanation. He just glosses right over it as though we don't even notice. But it's there. Now, I want to go back to a part of the book that like doesn't come out in the book, but it sets in motion the events of the book which is his original disgrace after um, trying to investigate Cordova the first time around. So what is weird is that he blames everything going wrong in his life with, oh, sorry, not with, on him trying to expose Cordova. Like, for example, he blames his divorce on Cordova. He's like, the only reason I got divorced is because of him. And it's like, what? Or he's like, I lost custody of my daughter, Sam, because of Cordova. And it's like, no, that's because you are a bad father. He's a bad father. And he's also a bad husband. Like, he admits it. It's not Cordova's fault. But he insists that it is. He's like, Cordova destroyed my life. And it's like, no. Like, you were the one who instigated the investigation. You were the one who made claims on national TV before you had any proof that Cordova was this evil mastermind. 
Like, what kind of reputable journalist acts like that? And it's like, you can't blame everything going wrong on Cordova. Like, maybe you should accept some of that responsibility yourself. But that's when you're like, this is an unreliable narrator. You cannot trust this guy. He's not just biased, he's actively lying. Maybe to himself, but also to us. Also, I need to point out that he is fixated on Cordova to a very strange degree. Like, he is obsessed with Cordova. And as much as he says that he started this obsession with discovering that organization, right, and being like, huh, like, maybe there's something shady going on with Cordova. That's not true. You know why it's not true? Because he's been friends with Beckman for years before he ever started investigating Cordova. Beckman is obsessed with Cordova. And we have proof that Scott was too. Like, he would go to, like, Cordova parties hosted by Beckman, and the reason that they were estranged at the beginning of the book is because of a Cordova-related incident. Both of them take Cordova and his movies very seriously, and they always have. But also, once he gets to the peak, right, and we mentioned earlier that he goes through all the film sets, he acts very strangely. Like, for example, he searches for conclusive answers to the movies in Cordova's film props, which makes no sense. Why would you think that the film props have anything to do with the actual, like, solutions to the movies? And also, Cordova's movies, as far as I can figure out, don't actually have solutions, and that's the point. I'm sure if you ask Cordova himself, he'd be like, it's whatever you think it is. That, that's what it is for me too. Like I could go both ways. Like I could argue both ways and so can you. And that's the entire point. But Scott is really obsessed about like finding out. Like that's why he had a disagreement with Beckman. Beckman. And it's just so strange that he's like, these props are definitive proof that this is what Cordova actually meant. And it's like, no, Cordova wasn't telling stories with resolutions, you know? That's not the point. Okay, one of the other big things that I need to point out before we get to that important conversation he has with Beckman about possibly being in a Cordova film. Before we get to that, so at some point in the book, so towards the end of the book, well, yeah, we learn that Ashley gave, okay, this is weird, so brace yourself. Ashley gave Scott's daughter, Sam, a protection trinket. Now stop a moment and ask yourself, what? Why on earth would Ashley give a five-year-old a protection trinket? Who, who does she want to protect Sam from? Hmm? Who does she want to protect Sam from? Well, Scott says that she wanted to protect Sam from Cordova. Which doesn't make any sense. Even the first time around, he was no threat to Sam or um, Scott's ex-wife. Scott's family was never threatened by Cordova or anyone related to Cordova because they don't care about Scott's family. Like, sure, they might care about Scott saying <laughs> things on national television, but why would they care about Scott's family? I mean, they could, but they never seem to. And so the question becomes, who does Sam need protection from? And actually... I think if you read the book, like I haven't gone back, but I'm pretty sure that the protection trinket 
plays a large part in Scott losing custody of Sam altogether. And my theory is that Ashley gave this to Sam to protect her from Scott because nothing else makes sense. There's no one else in her life that Sam needed protection from. Like, sure, there's a possibility that it could have been, like, the ex-wife's abusive or something, but, like, that's not in the book. No, there is no proof. Like, his ex-wife seems to be a fine mother. She's certainly better than Scott is at being a parent. So it must be that Ashley knew Scott was evil and gave Sam this protective trinket. So I think that that is really telling. I think that that's definitely, I, th I think that's definitely indicative. Also, have you ever considered that Ashley, when she was, well, whichever one you want to believe, diagnosed with cancer or got a devil's curse, Either way, she was five years old when it happened. You know who else is five years old? Sam. I feel like that's significant. I feel like Ashley sees herself in Sam. Actually, you know, Ashley and Sam are kind of similar. Like, they're both very thoughtful and precocious children. So, I think Ashley sees herself in five-year-old Sam and she's like, I, I want you to be okay, you know? And I think that it would make a lot more sense given the other families that Ashley takes an interest in and decides to give the children like these trinkets because they all are like abusive families. Yes, that's true. Ashley steps in to protect two other children throughout the book and those children, yeah, they're from um, abusive households. So I think this is actually maybe our most definitive proof that Scott is actually the evil one all along. Yeah. Okay, gosh, what if, what if the author, like, tells us, you guys are crazy, but we'll be like, it's in, it's in the book. <laughs> We're going off the textual proof in your book. Okay, so let's, let's continue. In Beckman's conversation with Scott, Scotty McScotland, about Cordova's films, there are some very telling passages. So here's the first one. Evil King, Beckman announced officially, clearing his throat. He's the villain a universally terrifying character of both myth and the real world. He can look outwardly repellent or totally innocuous. Usually it's someone in a position of great power, the smarter and more conniving the evil king, the more turbulent and satisfying the tempest he creates. That one was easy, Cordova. And I'm going to say, is it Cordova or is it Scott? Cause if you think about it, right? Scott looks innocuous even hapless. You sympathize with him and you want to go along with him on this journey. But the thing is, he's a smart man. He is a smart man and a conniving man. Like all the tricks he plays to like get into places and fool people. He's very conniving, more so than Cordova. I wouldn't describe Cordova as conniving in the least. Cordova seems to be relatively straightforward. Scott also, although he doesn't look like it on the surface, does have a lot of power like for example he's connected to all kinds of powerful powerful people like olivia endicott he he knows her he knows her like that's very indicative of how important of a person he is in his own right and all kinds of like connections like i would I would argue Cordova isn't very well connected or powerful anymore since he's like gone into hiding and no one ever sees him, right? Also, Scott has this weird ability to get people to help him even when it doesn't really make any sense for them to want to help him. And I think that that's strange, maybe even a bit supernatural. And finally, 
guess who instigates all of the chaos? Guess who instigates the Tempest every single time in this book? It's not Cordova, it's Scott. Cordova doesn't ever do anything in this book. Like, sure, in the past, maybe, but in this book, he's done nothing. It's always, always, always Scott who is bothering Cordova, essentially, and creating all of this ruckus. Okay, and then the other excerpt from the conversation is about good guys. Be the good guy, he said. How do I know I'm the good guy? He pointed at me, nodding. A very wise question. You don't. Most bad guys think they're good, but there are a few signifiers. You'll be miserable. You'll be hated. You'll fumble around in the dark, alone and confused. You'll have little insight as to the true nature of things, not until the very last minute, and only if you have the stamina and the madness to go to the very, very end. But most importantly, and critically, you will act without regard for yourself. You'll be motivated by something that has nothing to do with the ego. You'll do it for justice, for grace, for love. Those rather large heroic qualities, only the good have the strength to carry on their shoulders. And you'll listen. Notice who this doesn't describe. It doesn't describe Scott. You know the only reason that he perseveres throughout this journey is because he doesn't want to be wrong. He needs to be convinced that Cordova is actually evil because Scott feels like he lost his reputation and his life to Cordova and he wants those things back. And I don't know anything more ego egotistic than that. There, There is not really any sense of Scott is doing this for the greater good, for justice, for love. Like, justice for who? Love, love of what, right? That doesn't describe Scott in the least. And I'll say that at least at this point in the book, you'll be miserable, you'll be hated, you'll fumble around in the dark, alone and confused. I don't think that describes Scott as much as it describes Cordova. At this point in his life, Cordova is very lost and very miserable. Like he's lost his daughter that he really loved. Nobody really likes him anymore, even his fans. Like they still like his work, but who likes him? Nobody. And so I really think that Scott, for example, gets all kinds of help and support from everyone, basically, but like Cordova? No. So by this definition, the good guy would be um Cordova, not Scott. Here's our final piece of evidence. After Scott finally finds Cordova at the end of the book, one of the first things he thinks about is killing Cordova. And it's like, what? At that point, you have no conclusive evidence that Cordova has done any wrongdoing and your first thought is to murder him? That's not the thought of a good guy now, is it? So with all of that, there is our grand conspiracy theory that Scott is the actual bad guy all along and Cordova is not. Now, Cordova could be a weird guy, for example, like he could have believed in Ashley's curse and really been going around stealing like children's clothes and things and burning them, which is certainly weird, but like at least it's not murderous. But anyway, we'll talk a bit about Cordova's true morality in a bit. But for now, we'll say that we'll say that Scott is certainly not a good guy and at this point in time, I think he's worse than Cordova. I agree. One thing, though, that makes me pause, I totally agree that he's the evil guy, but he might not be the evil king. 
as I was listening to you talk about this, it struck me, maybe Beckman is the evil king. Because notice that Scott gets a lot of his stuff from, like, Beckman, for instance, blackboards. And it's a huge possibility that Beckman is a moderator of blackboards, and that's why he can get into blackboards, and that's why he's cut out of blackboards. And also, it's possible that Beckman's the one that leads him to that drag party or whatever it is, because that's through blackboards. Yeah, and the whole island stuff he finds on blackboards as well. Huh, that's really interesting. So the, the true nemesis is Beckman. But then wouldn't he have to show up at the island at the end? <gasps> Maybe Cordova turns around and it's Beckman. A greater conspiracy. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Because Cordova's obsessed with himself. What would he want to do in his retirement except talk about his own movies? <laughs> We're sitting here like, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's truly possible that Beckman is Cordova, too. That's why he's so freaked out about this friggin' uh, suitcase. He's like, how dare you try to open it? Because he is Cordova. We're so good at this. Okay, what do we think happens after the last page. It's a very ambiguous ending. Here's my theory. Only one of them comes back alive. I do have textual proof of this in the Beckman conversation. There is this quote. If you're the first character who appears in the scene after the Murad cigarettes have been smoked, it means you're marked McGrath. You're faded. You're doomed. And then on the final page, we get, on a small table beside one, a cigarette was burning. Murad, no doubt. White ribbons of smoke uncoiling off the end. So, the cigarette has been smoked, and now only one of them can come back alive. Although it is funny, if Backman is Cordova. It's so funny to think of this, like, scary director just, like, collecting cats in his old age. The thing that makes our theory compelling is that Cordova never turns around at the end of the book. And why would he not turn around? Also, he knows Scott's favorite whiskey. That's something a friend would know. Even if you were, like, stalking him and breaking into his apartment, you wouldn't necessarily know that. But you would know if you were his friend. Okay, now I believe it. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about what was actually going on with Ashley and with Cordova and what was happening at the peak. Was anything actually shady going on? I would say yes, definitely. The coyote insists that everything was on the up and up. She's like, oh, nothing bad was going on. But we know that isn't true. We know that isn't true. So, for example, Cordova. Oh, gosh. Okay. So one of the most disturbing parts of the book is Olivia talking about the time that she interviewed for a bit role in one of Cordova's films. And he, first of all, he asked all these invasive questions like personal questions not just about like her life which was weird enough but also about her fears like what was she most afraid of right and that very much sounds like this Hitchcockian Kubrick kind of motivation behind it like we're gonna torture you with your worst fear to get the best performance out of you that's what that feels like highly unethical. I don't like it. The other thing is Olivia describes that she falls asleep even though she doesn't mean to. Sounds like she was drugged. She wakes up and she's in a lot of pain and she doesn't know why. And that definitely sounds like something weird happened. Now the thing is I don't necessarily know that that was Cordova himself. That could have been the coyote. Like that could have been tortured by the coyote since she was in charge of the household could have been someone else close to Cordova who had that kind of sick twist in mind. Like the preacher. Like the priest, yeah. 
So we don't know. We have no definitive proof, but something bad was happening to people who were like acting in Cordova's movies. We do know that. And then of course, there is the way that everything seemed too perfect. Pat Martin, the actress, talks about how she went to a picnic at Cordova's estate where everyone was so loving and so kind and so amazing. That to me is actually a red flag. I don't think that if everything is actually going well that you're necessarily going to present that way. And as a converse, many abusive families do seem to be on the up and up at first glance. You're like, oh, they're so loving and kind. But the thing is, that's often how abuse works. Abuse isn't necessarily bad all the time. It's usually a cycle, right? That's why things like love bombing are, you know, a thing. Often abusers will like feel bad in the aftermath of the abuse and they'll try to make it up to their victims. And that creates trauma bonding between the abuser and the victim because the victim's like, well, this is so intense, but when it's good, it feels so good. Like that's something you hear a lot about toxic relationships. When everything is good, it's really good. But when it's bad, it's really bad. And so especially when it's a family and there are children involved, that can get very, very intense because the children have no way to escape. And so they will do anything to make their abusers happy. And so to me, that's actually a really big red flag. Then of course, Ashley is an attempted murderer. She hates the priest. And I mean, I don't blame her necessarily, but she sets him and his room on fire and tries to kill him, which is not, no matter how much you hate someone, that's not what a well-adjusted child does. I'm just, I'm just going to put that out there. Also, at some point in the past, Cordova's son gets his fingers chopped off in a motor boat accident and Cordova uses his son in one of his films, <laughs> fingers chopped off and all. And his son doesn't get his fingers reattached because medical care doesn't arrive in time. So now his son is permanently missing three fingers, which that's abusive I ever heard it. Uh, and then finally, our, our last little bit of proof is that Ashley had death curses in her apartment. And it's like, who would she have been expecting to turn up at her apartment? other than her family. I think it's very clear by that point that she she's turned against her family. She's not just running away because she wants to die. She she actively knows that something is wrong. Yeah, one of the loose ends in this book is who are the two people that show up to her door? Yeah, that's the weird part because we don't get any indication the family actually knows where she is. So it's like, who? Who is that? But going back to our conspiracy theory about Scott, it's possible that Ashley left the curses for Scott because notice the fortune teller or whatever she is says that the death curses only take effect on the person that they're meant for and they are taking effect on Scott. That's true. That's true. All right. Is there, okay, so is there an alternative ending to the book that you would have preferred? Something that cleared things up more? <laughs> yeah. Then in general, I do prefer less ambiguous endings. I would have taken just Cordova turning around and it's Beckman. That would have been a, a less ambiguous enough for me. That would have been a final like, oh. It's possible that he's not Cordova, but it's still Beckman there. Because you don't know that it has to be Cordova he will be there. Oh, sure. Or like, you know, Beckman could be like assuming a Cordova-like role. Okay, so 
Now, I have a fun little game for us. Which Cordova movie do you think you could survive? And the only Cordova movies I have here are the ones that we know the most about. In Cordova's movie, Thumbscrew, so essentially there's a husband and wife. The wife thinks that maybe her husband is murdering children. He's like a serial killer. And this paranoia drives her crazy and eventually... They have a knockdown, drag out fight. She kills him and she's taken to a mental institution and now she will never know. So for Thumbscrew, you're going to imagine that you are Emily. And in order to survive Thumbscrew, you have to either be okay with Brad maybe being a murderer or you have to fight him to the death. Could you survive Thumbscrew? Probably not because there are just so many things going on like you yourself are going crazy like you're living with the serial killer like the serial killer could kill you um you know what I'd do if I were Emily I'd just leave like I'd, I'd leave and never look back the minute I start to suspect my partner's a serial killer is the moment I'm out of there which is unethical because like then what you're not going to tell the police maybe I'd call in an anonymous tip but like, honestly, my safety is paramount to me, which may be a bit selfish. But if you're a woman in this world, you have to be a bit selfish to survive. Okay, for the movie, A Small Evil. I, d I don't need to talk about it too much because it's all in the question. Imagine that you have just arrived at a house. You are expecting to see your friend. This is your friend's house. You're here to have a vacation. Instead, masked men have already broken in to survive a small evil you have to make it back out of the house alive this would be the one i would choose to be in because for one thing isn't this the one where they have somebody with them like it's like mm -hmm. a, a couple it's a couple so for one thing you already have an ally and for another thing all you have to do is get out of the house honestly i think this is one of the scariest ones i don't think I would make this one out alive. I mean, I honestly feel like the minute you enter this house, you're doomed. That's my, that's my thing. I don't think I could survive this one. All right, next movie, La Douleur. So essentially, this is a weird movie. Like, the other ones I can kind of understand, but this one is weird. So, okay, so there's this woman named Lei. She agrees to spy on her friend's husband. <laughs> she tracks him down. She spies on him. Turns out he's in a gang. He has like this Tiffany jewelry box on a bus. <laughs> it's just like so weird. Anyway, so she tries to steal it for some reason. The gang members arrive and they like tie her up and just leave her in the bus. I don't know why they don't kill her. But anyway, that's La Douleur. So in this movie, you're going to imagine that you're lay and to survive this movie, you have to not only successfully like stalk your friend's husband, but then you have to escape a gang. Could you survive La Douleur? No. <laughs> yeah. The the moment you tell someone you tell me to stalk someone, I'm like, like if I had to, if for some reason I agreed and I had to go ahead with it, I wouldn't do a good job. Like I'm not good at being sneaky in terms of like following people around. <laughs> Like, I, w I, would, I would fail right there, you know? Yeah, neither of us are surviving La Douleur. All right, so wait for me here. So in Wait For Me Here, high school students are being systematically murdered. So 
In this one, you have to imagine that you're a high school student, and to survive this movie, you have to avoid being kidnapped and murdered. Are you surviving? Wait for me here. Possibly? The real question is how big is the high school? Because it's statistics. It's just a statistics game, which is true of like true crime in general. Like the only thing keeping you safe if you read too much true crime is the statistical possibility of something happening to you is quite low. So in this one, it depends on how big the high school is. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. How statistically likely are you to be chosen? That's all it is because there's no other way you're surviving the movie final movie to breathe with kings okay so basically there is this family and they are being picked off one by one and at the end of the movie it turns out that it's the child of the family who is murdering them so to survive this movie you have to outwit a murderous child without knowing who the killer is are you surviving to breathe with kings no <laughs> honestly the reason it's, it sounds like the reason she's murdering her family is because they're not nice to her. So I think for me, it depends on how nice you generally are to your family members. I don't know. Um, I, I give myself a 50% chance of surviving this movie. Really, it comes down to how the child feels about you. Children tend to like me. I'll give myself a 60% chance of survival. <laughs> All right. Okay. Final question, would you watch any of these movies? Out of curiosity, I'd watch one. Yeah, I feel like one of the murder mystery movies I might watch, I tend to like those. <laughs> not like, not like when they're extreme like this, but I feel like I could watch it and be okay probably. Who knows? All right. So I think this pretty much wraps up our discussion of Night Film. Thank you so much for joining me, Mouse. Oh, thank you for having me. And we will be back next week with our final episode of the Spooky Book Support Club. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me and we, well, thanks so much for joining us. And we will be back next week at 2AM. Until then, happy spooky season. Have a great week and happy book travels. Thank <laughs> you.